You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Around, my pretties, for a tale so frightening you'll want to call your senator. In a little English village, there's a small cottage, not quite in shambles, but also not the marker of wealth, outside of which stands a woman who is hanging a heavy iron cauldron over a fire. Though it's not a market day, she's wearing her tall felt hat because it catches the sweat of her brow better than her bonnet alone. This woman will call her Evelyn. Back bent prematurely from a life of work and malnourishment rather than age, tips a pail of well water into the cauldron. It's an unseasonably warm autumn day and too hot to be brewing inside. She's paid a boy from the village to haul water from the village well while she built the fire, and when she pours the first pail, there's a satisfying hiss as the cold water hits the hot metal wall. She spent the morning grinding malted barley with mortar and pestle and making mash. Now she opens the vat containing the mixture and appraises the mash. It is thick and ready. Simmer, simmer, boil and bubble. She sings softly to herself, willing the water to roil. When it does, she ladles the boiling water over the mash. She closes it up, tidies up her instruments while she waits before adding the rest of the water to the mixture. Then she strains the liquid from the mash and pours it into the cauldron. Once she squeezed every last bit of wart from the mixture, she takes up her mortar and pestle again to grind bog myrtle into a greenish-brown paste and adds this to the cauldron as well. She stirs it all together, letting the sweet, resinous flavor steep in the wart. Once it is boiled for a while and thickens, filling her nose with the sharp scent of the wart and myrtle, she carefully tips the cauldron to pour off the mixture into her fermenting vat. She seals it up and hauls it into the house. She nearly trips over her cat, who yowls angrily at her before darting behind the sacks of barley and oats stacked along the back wall. Tomorrow, she'll add hot water steeped in oak chips to the mixture and then let it sit for another day before putting her broom in the doorway to let the village know her brew was ready for sale. Not afraid yet? No, of course not. Who would be afraid of a middle-aged woman brewing ale in the middle of the day? No one, obviously. And yet the tableau itself has titillated and thrilled and terrified Europeans and Americans for centuries. An old woman with a pointy hat, cauldron, broom, cat, and smelly brew? Why, she must be a witch. Oh no, my darlings. This woman is not communing with the devil or cursing her neighbors. She's not even making herbal remedies to heal the ailments of her village, as did so many women accused of witchcraft from the 14th to the 17th centuries. 
She's just one of thousands of medieval, early modern Brewsters. Women who brewed ale to sell, trying to cobble together a living. The hat she wore because, as a fashionable look among noble women in the 17th century, it was both a marker of wealth and a way to be visible in a crowd on market day. The cauldron was essential equipment for the brewing of ale. The broom was a broom, but when hung on her door was a signal to passers-by that the ale was ready. The cat kept the mice out of the grains she used for brewing, and the brew itself was a nutritious, weak alcoholic drink consumed by all medieval Europeans at all times of the day. These are not things that are frightening, no matter the time period you're living in. Rather, it is the conflation of economically independent or powerful women with punishable-by-death witchcraft that should strike fear in our hearts. For the conflation of these things was facilitated by something far more insidious and horrifying. Patriarchy. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Elizabeth garner Masrick, And we're your historians for this spooky episode of Dig. of this episode shouldn't be all that surprising. If you've read just about any of the recent historical scholarship on witch hunts in early modern Europe, you also know that the patriarchy is a big burning pile of dog shit in the middle of the whole thing. Women who challenged male authority and power, who dared to be economically independent or speak out against social restrictions, or who were just outsiders because of their marital status, their skin color, their religion, or whatever, were all susceptible to accusations of witchcraft. Women were categorized as dangerous because who they were or what they did was an affront or challenge to the patriarchy. Patriarchy is, as Marina Watanabe succinctly puts it, quote, a socio-political and cultural system that values masculinity over femininity. Sometimes the evidence of a patriarchal society is obvious. Marissa's episode on coverture, for example, in which a woman's legal personhood was tied to her husband, is a great example of this. In patriarchal societies, women and femininity are constantly, though not necessarily consistently, being subjugated and subsumed by men and masculinity. Before we dive all the way in, fellas, if you're listening, this both is and isn't about you. I know that you don't personally, intentionally perpetuate the patriarchy. Also, there are plenty of women who do their part to prop it up. I, in fact, just did it myself by binarizing the gender system to just men and women. This is not an episode about how we hate men. It's not even an episode about how I think there is a secret cabal of men sitting in a dungeon somewhere thinking up ways to minoritize and minimize women. It is an episode about how powerful the patriarchal system is, how it has shaped human experience from the 14th century to today, and how it ruined beer, or at least brewing beer, for women. The patriarchy is so powerful that something that was for hundreds of years, quote-unquote, women's work, was redefined as men's work the moment that work gave too much influence to women. 
It's so powerful that people burned the women and men in their towns and villages just because they challenged or tried to live outside the rules and regulations of the patriarchal society. There are, I hope, a thousand different ways that you can think of in which the patriarchy has prioritized men and masculinity, has silenced all those who don't fit in within those rigid definitions, and suffocated women, literally and figuratively. Patriarchy is hierarchical. The hierarchy can be seen in top-down histories in which male kings and politicians and business executives massively outnumber females. It can be seen in the economic marginalization of women in Europe and the Americas. Historian Judith Bennett, for example, notes that medieval women made about one, one penny a day while men made one and a half pennies or two pennies a day when doing similar work, like brewing, as men. 700 years later aka 2017, women still make just about 80 cents on the dollar for doing the same work as men. It's 2018. I know, but that stat was from 2017. It's like, dude, you lost a year. Europe and European America have been mired in a constant patriarchal system for many, many centuries. We're just reaching back to the year 1300, but it definitely stretches further back than that. It can be harder to see now, because women are, quote unquote, allowed to go to college, right? Can keep their jobs, even if they get married. Can file rape charges against their husbands. 200 years ago, women were barred from higher education in Europe and the U.S. 50 years ago, Irish women had to give up their civil service jobs if they got married. Until 1993, there were still states in America where marital rape wasn't considered possible because a wife was obligated by the bonds of marriage to have sex with her husband, even when she didn't want to. So it can be easy to ignore or to not see where the patriarchy continues to dominate our lives today, because some of those more overt elements have been dismantled. And that's the nature of something as insidious as the patriarchy. It's there, shaping the world around us. And we can talk more about the current patriarchy later, but for now, let's focus on the patriarchy as it shaped our story of Brewsters and witches. So originally, I didn't think this was an episode about the patriarchy. We have a friend, Jason, not to be confused, with Elizabeth's husband, Jason, who, so this Jason that we're talking about, I'm talking about, is in, into homebrewing and craft beers. One day we were talking about how awesome this podcast is, and I was like, I know. And he was like, I read this article about witches and beer, and you should do an episode on that. And I said, what about witches and beer? And he said that the article claimed that modern the modern image of a witch was derived from female brewers in the Middle Ages. That sounds exactly like Jason. <laughs> and I was like, send me that article. I am intrigued. So he sent me that article. It was from a site called Brew Hoppin', and indeed, they were claiming the major components of the modern witch, as we know her, the hat the broom, the cat, the cauldron, bubble, bubble, toil, and trouble were all associated with brewsters in medieval Europe, women who made and sold ale. What the article failed to do, however, was to explain how the brewster look became the witch look. And that, to me, was the more interesting question. I followed all the linked citations. They didn't have any real citations at the bottom. And of course, almost none of this rando brewing website sources were connected to verifiable secondary or primary sources. But finally, one article that I landed on quoted liberally from this book, Ale, Beer, and Brewsters in England by Judith Bennett. 
Now, that's the historian that noted that medieval women made two-thirds of what men made back in 1350. Right. Right. So I started with Bennett's book because this article had quoted her effectively to prove the point that the Brewster look was associated with witchcraft. Long story short, her book doesn't make the explicit connection between the Brewster look and the modern witch, but it did help me to make the connection between Brewster's witchcraft and the patriarchy. So that's why this episode is Witch's Brew, How the Patriarchy Ruins Everything for Women, Even Beer. (laughs) So let's go back to our Brewster, turning her malt, her oats, water, and yeast into ale. In the 14th century, before the Black Plague, just about everybody in Europe was brewing their own ale. It was a basic food group, providing much-needed calories in a world where the milk was being turned into butter and cheese because those kept better. The water was likely to give you the runs, and wine was pretty expensive and being imported from wine-producing places like France and Italy. So it goes without saying that people weren't drinking tea at the rate that they will once Europe starts exploiting China. Ditto for coffee in the Americas. Ale, which was a fermented grain-based beverage without hops, was basically the only beverage people were drinking in this time period. King Edward I provided his soldiers with one gallon of ale per day, and most people drank a little over a quart per day. Significantly, from the 13th century through the 16th century, women were the primary brewers in England. We know this because ale, and then later beer brewing, was one of the most highly regulated and taxed industries in medieval England. There is evidence that conditions were similar in Germany and France and elsewhere, but Bennett's study is specifically about England, so that's where we will focus our discussion today. The process of brewing ale is basically what Abe described at the top of this episode. Crushed malt and some other grain added to boiling water until it is a kind of porridgey mash. Uh, then it is strained, it's fermented, watered down, fermented again. Yeast was available, but most people relied on yeasts in the air or yeasts cultivated by not washing their fermentation pot. So, yum. <laughs> medieval ale only lasted a few days before souring so i guess the the fermentation process wasn't that no it was not it was not a good uh preservation method okay gotcha right um so the introduction of hops in the 16th century lengthened the shelf life of brewed fermented beverages and by decree of the king brews that had hops were quote-unquote beer and distinct from ale All kinds of women brewed, and frequently. According to Bennett, quote, in the ballad of the tyrannical husband, uh, said husband's wife brewed at least once a fortnight. The Anglican priest William Harrison's wife brewed once a month in the late 16th century. And even in the early 17th century, Gervais Markham offered extensive advice on domestic brewing in her uh, marriage instruction book, The English Housewife. Single, married, widowed, young, middle-aged, old, Poor, middling, wealthy, with young children, older children, no children, all women brood. We can make generalizations. Generally, married women with children old enough to help with other chores dominated the Brewster profession in terms of making and selling ale. But there are also lots of exceptions to this generalization. And if you are interested, you should 100% read Bennett's book. There are some really interesting case studies in there. 
Before the Black Death, most women brewed just for their families and occasionally made a surplus intentionally to sell at market. Between 1348 and 1350, about one in every 15 households in the towns, one third of all village women, and about one half of all country households brewed for profit. Most households profited from brewing. It was a making enough for your family and selling the extra kind of business. To scale the business up required at least a little capital to buy the equipment and the ingredients. Even if you were cutting the barley with cheap oats and other things, um, you still had to have the ability to dedicate time and energy to the brewing process. Women who had the means and ability to brew on a larger scale sold their potions either at the market or directly to aristocratic families or households. Uh, For example, Richard Mitfort, Bishop of Salisbury, purchased about 125 to 150 gallons of ale every week from Alice Shepard, a brewster from Potterney. So as you can imagine, that would be a lot of ale for one woman to make every week unless she had a pretty significant Yeah, that's a big cauldron. Setup. Yeah. 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 (laughs) As I said, because most medieval European women were married, most brewsters were married women from moderately well-off families in the later part of their childbearing years. Their brewing income supplemented their husband's income, rather than providing the entirety of a household's income. We call this bi-industrial work. Mm. There were, of course, single or widowed women for whom brewing was their sole income, but in the 14th century, that didn't really mean much because it wasn't particularly profitable. There were tons of regulations and fees that brewsters had to pay. Prices were set by a regulatory board, including the ale taster, who would come like sometimes every week, sometimes twice a year. It ranged, and they would sample your brew and then decide how much it was worth. That's interesting. Yeah. If you upcharged your product and got caught, you'd be fined. Most brewsters were fined, so it's likely that they factored the overhead charge of a fine now and then into their profit margins. <laughs> In the early 14th century, commercial brewing was widespread and unspecialized. It was possible to turn decent profits, but it was not profitable enough to attract men. Before the Black Death, which peaked in Europe between 1347 and 1351, brewing was almost exclusively female work. Many towns and villages had exclusively feminine words to describe brewers, and only women appear in the local regulator's records. It was still subject to male control, of course. Husbands could decide when and how much wives could brew, and to whom wives could sell, and husbands could take the profits and do with as they pleased. Further, the male agents of the courts and regulation boards decided the quality of their brew and what prices they could sell it for. Brewing continued to be woman's work for about a century after the Black Death. It was low-skilled, low-status, and poorly compensated. They brewed in their homes or taverns, schlepped the ale to their customers on their backs, or carried their surplus to the market to sell. As long as it was only marginally profitable, it remained women's work, which in turn meant that it was considered low-skilled and low-status. Hmm. It's funny how that works there. Mm-hmm. But then the profitability of brewing shifted. The Black Death killed between 75 and 200 million people in Eurasia. Historians estimate that England lost about half of its population in the 1348 to 51 wave of the plague, and an additional 20% of its population when the Black Death returned in 1361. Alehouses grew in popularity after the Black Death, and ale consumption increased, 
along with meat consumption, while bread and wine consumption decreased. By 1500, casual brewers declined. There were fewer brewers overall than before the Black Death, but serving the same number of people. That smaller number of brewers was thus serving much larger markets than previously. Those who brewed, brewed consistently. There was no more selling once in one year, five times in the next year. Brewsters brewed and sold consistently. It became, in effect, an industry rather than the piecemeal buy industry it had been. Finally, men were attracted to it. According to Bennett, by the 16th century, brewing had established guilds in London, Oxford, and Southampton. Brewer guilds, like all other guilds, excluded women de facto. By the mid-16th century, the profitability of brewing was solidified. Brewers, male brewers, were serving regularly in urban public offices throughout England. When it was men's work, it was a profoundly profitable industry. Women continued to brew after 1500, but not on the scale of men unless they were helping their husbands or brewing and selling in secret. Not married Brewsters, including single women living in their father's household and widows, were the first to go entirely. Living on a Brewster income alone was effectively poverty prior to the 16th century. Not married Brewsters disappeared, or were pushed out of the industry, by the mid-15th century. Because of the consolidation and profitability of the industry after the Black Death, brewing shifted from a bi-industrial trade of wives, where they brewed and sold to supplement the household income, to a professional trade of husbands. For the most part, this was done quietly, phasing women out of the business through the exclusionary practices of guilds and property and licensing laws granted to husbands. But at other times, the envoys of the patriarchy just straight up told women that they weren't allowed to brew anymore. And Chester, the, the town council, banned women between the ages of 14 and 40, childbearing ages, from working in alehouses in the year 1540. Presumably, the men of the town were concerned that exposure to the ribaldry of the tavern would compromise the respectability and trustworthiness of women's childbearing years. Long before they were shunted aside by the patriarchal professionalization of brewing, however... The social status of Brewsters, of these women who brewed, was constantly under fire in the public discourse. Medieval people, particularly men, loved to hate Brewsters. The earliest depictions of Brewsters in ballads and pamphlets accuse these women of lying and cheating to get better prices out of their weak and adulterated ale. And to be fair, many, many of them did just that. And so did the few men who entered the business early and all the men who joined it once it was professionalized. Cutting your strong ale with the weak, watered-down stuff to fetch a better price was almost expected of brewers. But when the common practice was discussed in popular culture, the emphasis was always that this was a female practice, that only brewsters were this way, and that only brewsters should not be trusted. Male brewers were almost never the target of these diatribes. As brewing began to professionalize, the charges against Brewsters turned quite nasty. Women were accused of tainting the ale with all kinds of gross stuff, and we'll give you an example in a sec, including their own bodies. They were characterized not just as liars and cheaters, but as temptresses, whores, and of course, as witches. 
As historian Marianne Hester notes, laboring women, widowed and possibly older, and poor women were vulnerable to charges of witchcraft. Women who were in competition with men in areas such as brewing were also vulnerable. So once brewing was a man's domain, women who dared to linger there did so at great personal risk. The slanderous and, I guess, comical, popular and high culture depictions of Brewsters abound. In the 15th century, the famed English poet and tutor slash poet laureate of Henry VIII, John Skelton, wrote The Tunning of Eleanor Rumming. He promises... To you shall be told how her ale is sold to mot and to mold. Conveying the moral decrepitude of a Brewster who tempted men to drink themselves stupid, Skelton writes that the ale Eleanor brewed would be sold to travelers, to tinkers, to sweaters, to swinkers, to all good ale drinkers that will nothing spare but drink till they stare and bring themselves bare. In this poem, Skelton writes that Eleanor let her hens roost above the mash when they took a sh- they did so straight into the pot. She would shoo the hens away and then skim the dung onto a tray with the yeast. Then she'd mix the dung and the ale together. In the introduction of another uh, poem, Pascal's Jests, a 17th century book of humorous stories, the collection's narrator, Mother Bunch, is described as, quote, an excellent companion and sociable. She was very pleasant and witty, and she would tell a tale, let a fart, drink her draft, scratch her arse, pay her groat, as well as any chemist of ale whatsoever. From this noble Mother Bunch proceeded all of our great greasy tapsters and fat swelling ale wives, whose faces are blown as big as the froth of their bottle ale, and their complexion imitating the outside of a cook's greasy dripping pan beautiful image yeah really lovely descriptions of alewives and tapsters tapsters are the women who sold the ale and the alewives are the women who brewed it brewsters well beyond cutting strong ale with weak ale these kinds of characterizations of the alewife or the brewster were widespread such women were said to spit into the ale as it brewed stir it with their filthy hands allow their snot and sweat to drip into the pot They were disgusting, ugly old crones taking up space that didn't belong to them. Now, while we can't take these sort of fictional stories as actual public opinion, because they were, after all, made in jest, they certainly reflect an undercurrent of misogyny. Such women were characterized thusly because they sought economic independence, and by the 16th century, because they competed with men in the brewing industry. Significantly, there weren't these kinds of disgusting stories circulating about male brewers. Hmm. Go figure, right? (laughs) While people who sold food and drinks were generally regarded warily, none were depicted so viciously in popular culture as Brewsters. A Brewster before brewing was a man's domain was depicted as untrustworthy and conniving, characterization uh, consistent with the broader misogyny of medieval Europe. A Brewster after the Black Death, women who persisted in the business after men had claimed it for themselves, were far worse. Alewives were seen as sexually uncontrolled, driven by beastly lusts and foul delight. They were gross, tainted, cavorting with devils. As Bennett notes, in ballads, tracts, popular prints, pamphlets, and other media, ordinary people expressed a fearful dislike of alewives. They were just the sort of woman that you'd be expected to be strapped to a stake and burned for witchcraft. 
That said, I haven't found any evidence to suggest that Brewsters were more likely to be accused of or killed for witchcraft than other women. Bennett certainly does not make that claim. So the link between the Brewster getup and the modern witch was not one established alongside uh, the Eleanor Rummings of the 15th century or the Mother Bunches of the 17th. During the witch craze itself, which stretches this period of the Eleanor Rumming to the Mother Bunch period, witches tended to be depicted in art in the nude or wearing the basic garb of the time period. Sort of, they could be anyone among us. They look like us. Blah, blah, blah. Hans Balding Green's 1510 The the Witches, uh, it is a woodcut, for example, which we will put on the transcript, is an image of four women, all completely nude, hanging out in the woods. One, the youngest of the four, is flying a riding goat, for some reason. Another, the oldest and, and wrinkliest of the group, is standing in the middle of a tree, maybe growing out of the tree, and holding up a plate of roasted bird and fruit, maybe for the, as like an offering to the creepy man-devil creature that's like peering over her shoulder. Um, and then the other two are just lounging on the forest floor. There is a cat nearby, and one of the women has a spoon in a narrow pot or vessel, uh, but based on the look of it, it's probably not brewing equipment. Similarly, Albrecht Durer's Witch Riding Backwards on a Goat, another, uh, this is an engraving, has the offending woman nude with shriveled old breasts and really weird chair babies strewn about (laughs) on the ground below. Um, They are really weird chair babies. They're really, really weird. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) But there's no cat, no hat, not even a cauldron. Though Renaissance scholar Margaret Sullivan argues that Baldung and Durer's woodcuts are too early to be reflective of the witch craze, uh, both are dated several decades after the publication of Malleus Maleficarum, the Hammer of the Witches, which was the key witch-hunting text written by the Dominican priests Heinrich Kramer and Jacob Sprenger, with the blessing of the Pope. If Baldung and Durer were expressing the humanist forms of Renaissance art, as Sullivan suggests, they were also capturing the suspicions about witches. All the witches in these images are women, of course, as laid out in the Inquisition's key witch-hunting texts. Even if Baldwin's works weren't created at the height of the witch craze, Shakespeare's witches in Macbeth were. It's hard to imagine that Shakespeare wasn't at least aware of the intense witch hunt that Scottish King James IV led in 1597, trying and killing over 200 women. James led another two major witch hunts in Shakespeare's lifetime. Perhaps Shakespeare thought of Brewster's when he had the women gather around a cauldron to see the future, but artistic renderings of these women rarely cross beyond the cauldron itself into the realm of Brewster as inspiration in terms of costume. Still, what Macbeth's witches lack in physical resemblance to the typical Brewster, they make up for in other ways. Like the reviled Brewster, Macbeth's witches are temptresses. They get him drunk on the lust for power and ruin in his life, and they occupy space outside the control of men. In one 1770 woodcut, like the 16th century engravings from Baldrung and Durer, Macbeth's witches aren't hideous or holding brooms, but their sexuality and foul delight is on display. They're bare-breasted, drawing their male quarry in to stray from a better, more godly path. And that way, at least, they are like Brewsters. But that could be said about women more broadly. 
women who did not conform to the quiet, subservient Madonna so popular in Judeo-Christian ideology, susceptible to accusations of witchcraft. Undoubtedly, there are depictions of prostitutes and adulteresses that share the forms and function of the 18th century Macbeth scene and Balding's The Witches. The shift, the moment or moments when the Brewster-Witch connection begins to really take shape, at least in sort of popular culture, starts in the 17th century. There was, of course, a difference between the elaborate images created by artists like Baldung and Durer and those printed en masse to accompany witch trial pamphlets and broadsheets. Because they were quite costly to produce, woodcuts tended to be reused over and over, a fact that will be significant once the Brewster costume is adopted by this medium in depictions of witches. But until the 18th century, the mass-produced images of witches were pretty simple, they had clues drawn from works like Malleus Maleficarum and James I's Demonology for identifying witches, like animal familiars and devils with whom to commune, and were generally ugly older women with hooked noses. Mm-hmm. Similarly, a sketch from Dutch artist Jacques de Gen II from 1600 starts to look the way Brewster's like Eleanor Rummings and Mother Bunch were described with the hooked noses, the hideous old crone gathered around a cauldron that could very easily be a brewing kettle with a black cat perched nearby. But still, these images could be any old woman pushed to the fringes of society. One of the first woodcuts uh, of an alewife was an illustrated printed to accompany the verses about Eleanor Rummings. In this particularly unflattering portrait, a pock and hooked nose Eleanor stands splayed with a tankard of ale in each hand. She is intentionally asymmetrical, wearing a tall pointed hat, her hair lanky and wild, and body wide and asymmetrical. Also, in 1650, a popular woodcut of a Brewster nicknamed Mother Louse was printed that most any audience today would likely assume is a portrait of a witch. She wears a tall black hat with a wide brim. Her face is drawn in a sharp profile with a pointed chin and nose. She wears a ruffled collar and apron, and in the upper right-hand corner is her crest, a shield with three lice. (laughs) In the background is her alehouse, with the name Louse Hall written on it. At the bottom of the image is a verse that reads, You laugh now, good man two-shoes, but at what? My grove, my mansion house, or my dun hat? Is it for that my loving chin and snout are met, because my teeth are fallen out? Is it at me or at my ruff, you titter? Your grandmother, you rogue, ne'er wore a fitter. Is it a forehead's wrinkle, or cheek's furrow, or at my mouth, so like a coney burrow? Or those orient eyes that ne'er shed a tear, but when the excisemen come, that's twice a year. Kiss me and tell me true, and when they fall, thou shalt have larger pots and stronger ale. This image of Mother Louse plays on all the old stereotypes of Brewster's. In her hand, she holds two cups, with which she will cheat customers out of their ale pours. As the poem suggests, when the ale taster comes twice a year to check on the quality of her ale, she is forced to sell her product at the regulations board's rate, which is the only time she cries. Her tavern is called Laos Hall for its reputation for filth and poverty. It was originally an asylum for the poor when it was built in the 16th century, but she took it over as alewife selling her brew. 
She is old, ugly, unfashionable, indicated by her ruffle, which was well out of style by 1627, and precisely the sort of woman whose 1627 establishment, if she didn't have a husband running the business, would attract the ire of the quote-unquote legitimate brewers of Oxford, where Louse Hall was located. By crafting this narrative of disorderliness, ugliness, and unsavoriness, men made beer and ale and its associated businesses, from brewing the product to selling it in markets, direct to customer or in taverns, to the alehouses themselves, unwelcome spaces for women. Women who spent time in alehouses were morally suspect. According to the lore, if they were tavern owners' wives, there was a good chance the tavern owner was being cuckolded. If they were merely hanging around, they were prostitutes. Women could not sustain the Madonna ideal if they were tied to the brewing industry. With the exception of wives working in the background and widows taking over the business when their husbands died, women were elbowed out of brewing by the end of the 17th century. As if to solidify their unwelcomeness and reputation, the woodcuts of women like Eleanor Rummings and Mother Louse made perfect models for the mass-produced witch woodcuts of the 18th century. In addition to the old markers of witchiness, like animal familiars and devils, in the 18th century, witches started flying on broomsticks, wearing tall black hats over bonnets, and toiling over cauldrons. Long after the women who were killed as witches were dead, their stories were retold and reprinted in works like the 1720 The History of Witches and Wizards and John Ashton's Chapbook of the 18th Century, a collection of supernatural stories and their accompanying woodcuts from the 18th century. The tendency of printers to use the same woodcuts to illustrate different texts continued, and those pointy-hatted broomstick-riding Brewsters became the face of witchcraft from the 18th century, surviving quite obviously until today. Notably, in images from texts like The History of Witches and Wizards, only the witches, the females, wore those pointed hats. Wizards wore hats, but short and presumably stylish. Witches alone were shown in those tall, pointy hats, which hadn't been in fashion since the 17th century. Even if the Brewster link is a coincidence, clearly this was a jab at women who might be stepping outside their socially accepted roles and expectations. She'd wear that hat because of what she thought it represented, even if it was above her true station in life and a century out of style. Those patriarchy-fueled connotations about Brewsters as evil hags, as witch-like as one could get, were not merely relegated to Halloween costumes in Hollywood Technicolor productions. In the final chapter of her book, Judith Bennett discusses a U.S. Supreme Court decision that upheld 400 years of the patriarchal assumptions and regulations of women who wanted to work in alehouses. In 1948, Justice Felix Frankfurter was deliberating on a law in Michigan that prevented women from working in taverns or alehouses unless their husbands or fathers were the owners. Bennett quoted very briefly from the majority decision, which upheld this law, even though it discriminated both on sex and marital status. I thought for this we would read larger chunks of this decision okay. that Frankfurter um, provided. So here you go. We are, to be sure, dealing with a historic calling. We meet the alewife, sprightly and ribald, in Shakespeare, but centuries before him, she played a role in the social life of England. 
The 14th Amendment did not tear history up by the roots, and the regulation of the liquor traffic is one of the oldest and most untrammeled of legislative powers. Michigan could, beyond question, forbid all women from working behind a bar. This is so despite the vast changes in the social and legal position of women. The fact that women may now have achieved the virtues that men have long claimed as their prerogatives and now indulge in vices that men have long practiced does not preclude the states from drawing a sharp line between the sexes, certainly in such manners as the regulation of liquor traffic, since bartending by women may give rise to moral and social problems." And Michigan evidently believes that the oversight assured through ownership of a bar by a barmaid's husband or father minimizes hazards that may confront a barmaid. This court is certainly not in a position to gainsay such belief by the Michigan legislature. If it is entertainable, as we think it is, Michigan has not violated its duty to afford equal protection of its laws. So there are, like, a lot of things going on here. One, he's, like, not a medieval historian, right? So he, he he's drawing on a cultural memory of what an alewife is. Right. He has not spent his life studying this, the records of the of the Brewsters in, in medieval um, English archives, right? So he, he, is, he sees Brewsters in this longer sense because this is a, an idea that has survived from the 14th century to 1948. Uh-huh. Second, he is upholding this law because he thinks probably that women shouldn't be in bars at all. Right. Because of the alewife, alewife idea, right? right? Evidence from his yeah. talking about morals and yeah. protecting. Right. So he, he's saying that, but fine, if Michigan thinks that husbands and fathers will protect these women from the hazards, then that's good enough. Right. Not that this law shouldn't exist at all and women should be have access to work in bars and own bars if they want, but, but the opposite. Right. Right. We must protect their their delicacies. Yeah. So thanks, right. Judge Frankfurter. And also, fuck you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Brewster, in the end, was exactly the sort of woman that a patriarchy-fueled witch hunt would search out to destroy. And the cultural memory of the freedom and independence Brewsters had and the disgust the patriarchies of Europe and the Americas had toward those kinds of women continues today. One need only consider how men treat female bartenders and waitstaff. Their proximity to alcohol seems, to some patrons, to advertise sexual availability. So the legacy of these women, these Brewsters, as hijacked by the patriarchy is, one, sexualization and assault of female employees at bars. Two, the Wicked Witch of the West. Three, to bring it all back together, the sexy witch costume of your choice at your local party city. Happy fucking Halloween. Mm. To summarize, sure. There are some solid connections between the costume of the Brewster and the modern witch. That image was solidified by repeated use of the same woodcuts in the 18th century, long after the real witches themselves were dead. But more importantly, I think... The patriarchy ruins everything for women. And now we can add beer to that very long list. Register to vote.
you know, I will see, I think it's funny too, just like bringing it back to your article and the article in particular. I remember this article kind of making its way around Facebook as well. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's the same article that your friend was talking about or a different one, but I think this is also kind of a good kind of window into historicizing things, mm-hmm. right? So you find a, kind of a clickbaity article mm-hmm. and you read it and there are no sources. Or if you do click it, it goes to another article, which basically kind of regurgitates the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's this idea of like media literacy, right? Yes. Like, and, and that's kind of the, the, the job of the historian, but mm-hmm. also should be the, the job, job of, of everyone, right? Yeah. To keep clicking and keep clicking and keep clicking because, until you find... A documented source, right? Mm-hmm. Or uh, a primary source who is using documentation, like actual documentation, right? right? Yeah. And um, and so this kind of idea that that, that we, we can't really say that witches and Brewsters are one hundred percent linked, right? Right. We can make inferences, yeah. right? And Avril kind of walked us down the path that she took mm-hmm. to make that inference, but it it took this kind of third element of patriarchy mm-hmm. right to make that arch right yeah. to make to make that argument and yeah. to and to kind of show how she walked her way through this kind of um argument that she's yeah. making right and i think judith bennett probably she wanted that inference to be there she doesn't make that that argument explicitly because mm-hmm. i think we like we learned this when we read marissa's stuff that early modern year or like english history people historians they they're very very careful about the assertions that they make yeah if they can't say here's where this happened right look at the evidence right then they won't say it then they will not say it they right. will not say it yeah um so i think judith bennett like her the this this episode became about patriarchy because her introduction is about patriarchy because she was teaching this class teaching class to undergrads and she was telling them about how women in medieval europe in 1350 made one penny a day and men made a penny and a half or two pennies a day uh-huh. and the student raised their hand and said so how's that different from today and judith bennett like talked her way around. I was like, well, you know, because they also supplemented with food stuffs and other things that weren't monetary. But then when she got back home, she was like, no, f- that it but actually it, but is. It is. <laughs> it is the right. same, right? It, right. This, this, there are so many elements about how the patriarchy keeps women down that are consistent. Even w- we see this massive change in an economic system, right? The brewing becomes this major economic opportunity Mm -hmm. and through that women are pushed down even though it was originally a woman's work right so that's like that's the patriarchy in a nutshell i think that's like the real point of her book Uh um so again please go out and read the whole thing in its entirety because it's very good it sounds really interesting yeah i did want to just say um obviously i hope you enjoy this episode i try to harness my anger in a productive way um, which I think you did really well. Thank you. Uh, but be sure to check out all the images that we've been t- describing in the in the transcript of this episode. That'll be at digpodcast.org. Um, you'll also find a long list of my sources for this episode, including a bunch of really awesome digitized primary sources. Hmm. If you're a teacher and you have the witch craze on your syllabus or you're like me and you're designing a witchcraft class now because Ooh. of this episode, because now I'm obsessed with witches Fun. again, it's literally a treasure trove out there on the interwebs. <laughs> there are so many more that I didn't even have time to read before I wrote this so start there and just enjoy awesome 
So, and also talk to us, right? We love to hear from you. You can always email us at hello at digpodcast.org. You can chat with us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can pin our pins on Pinterest. And you can find us at uh, dig underscore history on all those social media platforms. Yeah. Goodbye. Goodbye. Fight the patriarchy. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Averill Earls. Thanks for listening. And this particularly unflatter would be success success similarly 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 also. Okay, I said poem, and I, I'm you sorry. did say poem. That's what I said. I like it. As the poem, poem, poem. Just say poem. It's cuter. Simmer, simmer, boil and bubble. She's <laughs> can't laugh after you do it. I'm sorry. Just do it. <laughs> we love beer. Beer. I love beer. I, I, actually, I like beer. I don't I like beer. I don't. I like beer. I went to Yale. I don't. I went to Yale. No. <laughs> <laughs> but also we hate men. <laughs> That's yeah, really weird. Hmm. 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 Hmm.